Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. It's good to see you and to be seen by you. Thank the Lord for another opportunity to indulge in his word this afternoon. What a blessing it is. We praise God for his goodness to us. He is faithful. Oh, if we only knew what that meant. God is good. We're continuing in our series, um, Assure Assurance, as we look at 1 John. And um, I must say, I've, I've had to ask a few people to, to pray for me um, concerning today because it's, it's, it's quite an involved session we're going to have today. And um, I know ordinarily we'll come on a Sunday and, you know, we want to have a, an uplifting word, a word of encouragement, a word that's, you know, just straight to the point, easy to digest, able to kind of leave, get on with things, have a blessed week, be encouraged. And um, sometimes we're maybe not so inclined to really kind of want to come to church and actually put in work. (laughs) You know, we we put in work during the week. And so to come to church and put in work is sometimes a bit much to ask. And um, I can understand that. But my admonition is let's not be lazy Christians. Let's not be lazy Christians. As we was going through the pastoral epistles to Timothy, we saw clearly Timothy being exhorted to study. Some translations say be diligent, apply effort to show yourself approved to God. A workman rightly dividing the word of God who need not be ashamed. And this is a word to all of us that we be a people who buy the truth and sell it not, as it says in Proverbs. What does that mean? Buy the truth and sell it not. Does that mean that we're supposed to pay for truth from God? Well, the answer is yes. We are supposed to buy the truth. Not necessarily with funds, not necessarily with cash, but at least with our time and our energy as we give ourselves to understanding the word of God and applying ourselves and recognizing that the gospel has content. The gospel has content. I get that from Rich T. We'd have conversations and he would say, you know, so often people want a, a kind of a contentless, contentless gospel, uh, a, a gospel that's really kind of um, tabloid headlines. And yet we have a gospel that has content and rich meaning. And so I'm forewarning you today that we're going to be um, giving some, we're going to have to kind of give ourselves to what we're looking at in these verses. Um, I'm going to be going from chapter 1 verse 5 into chapter 2 verse 2, just by way of a kind of um, an overlap into our verses today. And um, I trust the Lord will help us. And so, um, 
permit me, if you will, to read our verses and then to commit our time to the Lord in prayer. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the richness of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have committed yourself and been faithful to preserve your word. As we look in the Gospels, we hear Jesus say that not one comma or full stop of the word will, will pass away. Lord, you've preserved it for our edification, for our revelation, for our insight. And we thank you because through it, Lord, you reveal yourself to us. Lord, I pray that we would have an increasing appetite for your word, that we'll have an increasing hunger for your word, and that, Lord, truly, it will reside in us and transform us and make us more like Jesus, that, Lord, your image will be seen in your people in the earth. Have your way among us today. Help us, Lord, I pray. We thank you for the faculties that you've given us, we thank you, Lord, that we don't have to be graduates and doctors and, in order to understand your word. Because you've given us your spirit, Lord. Your Holy Spirit resides in us. He is the spirit of truth who illuminates our hearts and minds to your truth. Thank you, Lord, for the presence of your spirit. Have your way among us, Holy Spirit, we say. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Now, I mentioned that we're going to be doing a bit of work today, and we're going to be looking at some, some terms, and we're going to be unpacking some terms, and I'm going to attempt to unpack them as simply as I can. I'll give you an example. So one of the terms we're going to be looking at is expiation. Expiation. Uncommon word, right? Another term we're going to be looking at is propitiation, as we heard it in the ESV version, um, rendered different, differently in a few versions. But propitiation, another one of those words that you don't want to say with your teeth missing. And so, I forewarn you in advance, um, sometimes we used to go to primary school and do assemblies and do ministry with the, the children there, and um, we would hear the, the teachers sometimes say to the, to the pupils, okay, so now get your thinking hats and put them on. And they would actually get the children to say, 
get her thinking hats and they'll do the action. Are your thinking hats on? And they'll be like, yes, miss, our thinking hats are on. And so I'm going to ask that we put our thinking hats on, but you don't have to do the actions. You, thank you, Merle. You just bring joy to my heart. Are we going to put our thinking hats on? Can I see everybody put, put your thinking hat on? Are your thinking hats on? Yes. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. <laughs> You're going to tilt it, right, with a little swagger. <laughs> Amen. So we've got our thinking hats on, and we're going to be Bereans, endeavoring to search the Scriptures for ourselves. So in Acts 17, Paul encountered a group of people and they believed on the word that he shared, but he commended them specifically and uniquely because they did not only receive what he said, but they searched the scriptures to see that it was so. So let's be Bereans today, amen? Now we shouldn't be afraid of big multi-syllable words. Sometimes people use these words to... um, demonstrate power over others because they know that they're uncommon words and people might not be very familiar with them. So they use it to show how knowledgeable and wise they are and how clever they are and how silly and stupid and ignorant and imbecile other people are. Now, obviously, that's not the aim today, but we appreciate that big words can be beneficial. One of the things I learned was that by using big words, it allows people to say in one word what would normally take several. And so it's an economy of words. You know, they say time is money. So why am I going to waste time using many, many words to try and explain something when I can use one? Now, this is the, the mentality of the intellectual. We appreciate that as gospel ministers, our aim is to make the gospel plain, not to sound clever. And if anyone's stepping up in the pulpit with the endeavor to try and sound clever and show off how knowledgeable they are and how great their theology is, then you know what? You you failed at the first hurdle. We come humbly with the word. Now, we see that in our culture, in common culture, if you like, in popular culture, there are often occasions when they are not afraid to use uncommon, quote-unquote, big words. So let me give you an example. Um, Some of you may be familiar with a film beginning with the the first words on the screen there. Um, The Shawshank Redemption. Now, Many of us recognize that straight away, appreciate and understand that Morgan Freeman and the other brother, (laughs) no disrespect, (laughs) careers went in different directions after that, right? It was a big film, yeah? And how many of us really, when that that film first came out, how many of us really knew what redemption meant? Unless maybe we'd been in the church for a while. But it was a, a term that was used, and Hollywood wasn't scared to use it. And throughout the course of the film, they unpacked the meaning of the word. Okay, um, next one, a little bit more cryptic. (laughs) Atonement. Okay, then. So, um, oh, I forgot to show you this. So, um, that was Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Um, Atonement. 
Now, I'll be honest with you, I don't know what the film's about. <laughs> I really don't, apart from it's about atonement. And Hollywood were not scared to use a term like atonement, even though it's uncommon and maybe even unpopular. And the film done well. The, the film was very well received in terms of awards. The film um, made 300% profit on their um, making budget. Um, it wasn't, you know, huge, massive blockbuster, but they made money out of it. It didn't flop, it done well. And um, they were able to attract some good actors and people took it in. If we have the patience to work with the word, we too will be benefit and blessed by understanding and appreciating its meaning. Amen? Um, so, in our verses today, we see the Apostle John make a contrast between human and divine nature. Human and divine nature. In verse 5, we see him speak of divine nature. And it is absolutely essential that we recognize that 1 John 1 verse 5 is a cardinal truth. Now, when I say cardinal, um, many of you will be familiar, familiar with a compass. Um, not the mathematic compass, but the navigational compass. And the, the navigational compass has four main points. Four main points. Anyone want to suggest what they are? Thank you. North, south, east, and west. Not in that order. And those four points are, the, are the, what are called the cardinal points of the compass. They are the main and sure and true points of the compass. And then there are other graduations that are appreciated and understood in between those points, but they are in reference to those four points. What we see in verse 5 is a cardinal truth of Scripture. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And this is one of the truths that helps govern our understanding of God, even when other things don't seem so clear. Amen? So there will be times when we might be called to question, wow, is God really good? Is God really kind? Is God really just? Is God really fair? Well, we know that God really is. How do we know? 1 John 1 verse 5. God is, work with me today, light, yeah? God is, and in him is no at all, yeah? So there's no darkness in God. There's no wrong. God is pure. He is beyond pure. He is so pure, he is holy. Yeah? Now, this is revealed, and this is true. I stress that from the outset, because, as I say, there will be occasions in our walk as Christians when that truth will be challenged in our hearts and in our minds. And we will have a choice to either lean on our own understanding and trust our own understanding 
or trust in what God has revealed of himself. Sometimes we may be confused. We'll have a situation where we're like, Lord, I was trusting you for this. And it didn't happen. And I can't believe it didn't happen. And I was trusting you. And it causes us to look at God differently. Someone goes through the pain of miscarriage. And you're challenged to to look at God differently. You lose your job. Your house gets repossessed. And it challenges you to look at God differently. And yet God has revealed himself. We can't make up what we think God is like. God is a person, self-existent. He is immutable, unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he has revealed himself as being good. He is light and in him is no darkness. Now that alone is worthy of our praise. Because of who he is. In this we see that not only is God good, but humans aren't. God is good, but we're not. How do we see this? Verses 6 to 10. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So we have the capacity to walk in darkness. We have the, and it's not even just that we have the capacity, but some do walk in darkness. Consistently and intentionally. As we all did at one time. However long you've been a Christian. Let's not forget that. Let's not forget where the Lord has brought us from. But we have the capacity to walk in darkness. You know, it is impossible for God to sin. It is not in his nature to sin. That is absolutely like confounding. It's, it's mind-blowing. It's not in his nature. His nature is divine. He cannot sin. I'm not going to try and explain it, but it's there, isn't it? But we have the capacity to sin. And not only do we have the capacity to sin, in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. In verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. So it's not just that we have the capacity, but actually, we have sin in our nature. Denying that is an exercise in futility. In other words, it's a waste of time. There's no point trying to deny that we have sin in our nature. Trying to excuse sin is also a waste of time. Trying to refuse to recognize our sin is a waste of time. And this is what we see communicated in these verses. That we as humans are sinful. And we are prone to sin. And yet, through Christ Jesus, we have been regenerated. Our spirits have been renewed. And that means that we have been, we've received an, an, an impartation God's spirit has been inputted into us, enabling us to have victory over sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. 
but are now slaves to Christ who purchased us by his precious blood. And so therefore, in verse 1 of chapter 2, we see John saying, look, I'm writing this so you don't sin. I'm writing this so you don't sin. Now, why would he say that? And why would he go to the trouble of writing it if it wasn't true? If it, if it wasn't a reality? It's actually possible that we don't have to sin. That we are able to, as participants in Christ's victory, over sin, demonstrated through his resurrection from the dead. He died, he took upon himself the sins of the world, he, and that is why he died. He wouldn't have died otherwise. He was sinless, perfection. He took upon himself the sins of the world, and in doing so, tasted death. And yet, that wasn't the end of the story, because on the third day, they went to the tomb, and what did they find? Just the grave clothes. It was empty. He wasn't there. Death couldn't hold him down. Listen, I remember, right? <laughs> I must have told you this story before. I remember there was a, a concert in Tootin. Like, this was in the days, I don't know, 20 years ago, when there were gospel concerts two, three times a week all over London. And at that time, there was a concert at a church in Tootin, and there was a choir being led by... Um, who we now know as Bishop John Francis from Rook. Um, th this was long before he was a pastor, and he was the, the leader of this choir, and the choir was called the Inspirational Choir. And they had this song that was sung by a sister called Sarah Brown, and the song was called Death Can't Hold Him Down. When I tell you, that song, that night, mash up the place. You know when you know it, like, if a song lasts four minutes these days, it's long. 12, 15, 20 minutes later. <laughs> Death can't hold him down, down, down. <laughs> Listen. And it wasn't just the fact that the song was, the song was hot. It was a good song and it was well played and it was well sung. But it was just a reality being that resonated with our souls. That death couldn't hold Jesus down. And through that, we understand that he conquered sin, which is why he is alive today. And we're participants in his resurrection power. And therefore, John can say to us, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. I don't want you to sin. You don't have to sin. What a, what a, a, a precious promise that we're able, here and now, to experience victory over sin. And you know what? I, 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 I believe this is a reality. There are many of us that up to this point in time never really considered it a reality. You just kind of resigned yourself, well, we're all human, we're all sinners, we all make mistakes, and almost excuse sin in your life. But to the one who has repented and put their faith in Jesus, you have the exciting prospect of enjoying victory over sin. Amen? Amen. Praise be to God.
But John doesn't stop there. He says, if anyone does sin, but if anyone does sin, so that's a conditional clause. It's not a given, it's not guaranteed, but if it does happen, we have an advocate with the Father. There's a song by, sung by one of my favorite male vocalists. Um, his name is, in fact, let me not tell you his name first. Um, let me see if there's any of you who might be able to guess, apart from Calvernia and maybe Harriet, because I know they're old school like that. Um, and there's a lyric in the song, and it, and it basically goes like this. It says, it's good to know you'll be there if ever I fall but it's better to know that I don't have to fall at all. Now, I would try and sing it for you, but I'm not going to try and ruin your day yet. <laughs> Any guesses who that vocalist might be? Any guesses? I might bring Cow and Harriet now. I'm going to challenge them. They don't even know themselves. <laughs> Anyone? Any guesses? Who said that? Oh, my beloved. She knows me. Amen. <laughs> Marvin Wynan sung that song. Classic. Don't have to fall at all. It's good to know you'll be there if ever I fall, but it's better to know that I don't have to fall at all. Bars. And so, if we do sin, you know what? The Lord is there. And it's beautiful in this, because in this we see the... John make direct reference to God as Father. We have an advocate with the Father. You see, for so many of us, we sin, and we sin in a way that causes us to think like our relationship with God is over. We've blown it. We've messed up. We're beyond reach. We're beyond his care. We're beyond his love. Surely he's going to kick me out of the family and, and send me to hell. No. He remains our father even when we sin. You think of your worst, most heinous sin, the sin that you most regret in your life, the one that Satan tries to bring back to your remembrance to haunt you of your past, and know that even that has not separated you from relationship with God. Now we understand that it disrupts our fellowship with him. It interrupts our communion with him. Like Adam in the garden. Adam sins. Eve sins with him. And God comes walking. Adam didn't go looking for God, which really he ought to have done. But God came walking in the garden looking for Adam. And he calls out to Adam, Adam, where are you? And that's the Father's heart toward you. That's the Father's heart toward you, even in view of your sin. If truly you've put your faith in Jesus, you can be assured that even when you sin, God remains your God, the Father remains your Father. Now, 
John also says there that we have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate. And that's a legal term, and it exposes the legal issue in relation to sin. And it's important that we understand this as we go into these next verses, because some people have a kind of real sentimental or casual view of sin. And they think that God is just someone who kind of, someone for whom sin doesn't matter. But God presides over a divine court of eternal justice. And we see in the book of Revelation, actually, that an individual sins, all of their wrong deeds are recorded in the books. And this same apostle John said, and I saw the books open and the living and the dead were judged from what was written therein. And so sin is not something that's minor. It's not a a non-issue to God. It's not something that God takes casually. And we see this expressed first and foremost in verse 9 of chapter 1. We touched on it last week. And just to underline a couple of terms in this verse, a verse we're very familiar with, if we confess our sin, if we turn and agree with God concerning our sinfulness, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, it's interesting that it would use the terms faithful and just to forgive us. That would say that God's forgiveness for us is based on his faithfulness and his justice. Now, that should, in the first instance, make us nervous. Because we have to ask ourselves, hmm, if God is truly faithful and God truly is just, then he really ought not to forgive us. Because we do nothing to deserve forgiveness. We do nothing to warrant forgiveness. And so if God as the judge presiding over the divine court of eternal justice, was truly to be just, then we should get our just desserts, as they say. We should be punished for our sins, not forgiven. If God is going to be faithful in that he's going to be true to himself, he is without any darkness. But, he is faithful and just faithful and just to forgive us our sins because he has made provision for our forgiveness and as we look back at verse 1 of chapter 2 we see he who is our provision Jesus Christ the righteous Jesus Christ the righteous can I take my jacket off? Is that all right? Um, now, it's interesting the way in which there is a clear emphasis in the righteousness of Christ. And as we begin to consider, what we're beginning to look at is the fact that the Father has made atonement for our sin through Jesus. So, there's that word again, atonement. 
Let me just give you a brief definition. Atonement, the action of making amends for a wrong or injury. The action of making amends for a wrong or injury. And it's a word that is not exclusively quote-unquote religious. Hence the film title. It wasn't a Christian film. It wasn't a religious film. But the, action, the act of making amends for a wrong or injury is regarded as atonement. In fact, some dictionaries will go on to give the definition as atonement being the reconciliation of God and mankind through Jesus Christ. Being restored, renewed in relationship through Jesus. Sin brings disaster. As Pastor Rob has so eloquently rhymed. Some they try to cover with a plaster. Man-made. Jesus is the only atonement for our sin. And he is the sure atonement for our sin. He is the sure atonement for our sin. We understand this because Jesus is righteous. Jesus is righteous. Jesus lived a sinless life. Some call this the active obedience of Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, 100% human, 100% divine, was tempted as a man yet without sin. He lived his life actively obeying God. At the end of his life, presenting a sinless record on our behalf as our substitute in our place that was necessary in order for atonement to happen. Christ had to be righteous, not just in status, but also in experience, and he was. In fact, we see Jesus affirm this, In John chapter 8, verse 46, he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees, and he says, which one of you convicts me of sin? Another version says, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Now, believe, these guys were sin scrutinizers. They, they, if, if anyone was sinning, they would know about it. If anyone was sinning, they had their CCTV, or should I say Pharisee TV, focused on, they were quick to recognize sin because that was the means by which they justified themselves as righteous. And yet none of them could prove Jesus guilty of sin. They watched him for years. 
They heard of his reputation. And yet none of them. Jesus was entirely without sin. He is righteous. It goes on in verse 2 of 1 John 1 to say, He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Now, you're thinking, that word definitely needs definition. Let me just first of all say that the translation of that word varies. There's been some debate as to how best to try and explain the meaning of this word for a number of reasons. Primarily because it's difficult to communicate in a very concise way. There are also shades of meaning that need to be communicated, but are very difficult to communicate. And yet, we see this word used here and also in chapter 4. And we recognize that the Apostle John uses this word very intentionally. Now, in short, it basically means that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. In short. There's more to it than that. But in short, it basically means Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. In communicating this truth, some have chosen to use the word expiate. And I'll explain why in a minute. But they've chosen to use the word expiate because they feel that it gives a more favorable picture of God. So, to expiate, and maybe if I put this up it might help at this point. To expiate is to provide a satisfactory means of quenching someone's anger, hence the gift. So, okay, I'm mad at you because you use my cup. <laughs> And so, having been mad at you, you've brought my cup, you've returned my cup, and you've also given me money for using it as a gift. Now, I'm always happy to receive money. My cup's intact, it's clean, even if I did bleach it out myself, and the issue's resolved. Your gift has quenched or expiated my anger. Yeah? So, there is a sense in which the gift of Christ's life quenched the anger of God. This is true. And so we're able to say today as Christians, God is not mad at you. God is not mad at you. 
And sometimes we can, even as Christians, walk around with that real sense of heaviness as if God is continuously angry with us. But Jesus' gift was acceptable to the Father and caused the anger of God towards sin, the righteous and just anger of God towards sin, to be quenched. Praise be to God for expiation. But there are those who say that's not enough. And say that we have to understand that there's more to it than just Christ's life being offered as a gift and causing the Father's anger to be quenched. And so they will give emphasis to the term propitiation. Now, again, I'm going to try and give you a visual definition. Here we see Bruce Lee, poorly. I don't know if you can see that very well. And he's interacting with a punch bag. Let me see if I can get him to go again. You see that? You see that? Yeah? And I'm sure that there are none of us who would like to be that punch bag at this point in time. As Bruce Lee so skillfully and masterfully pummels that punch bag. Now, I'm sure if the clip went on, he'd probably use his knees and his, his feet as well. He wouldn't just punch, but he would kick because he was known as a devastating fighter. And what propitiation communicates is Jesus became the Father's punch bag for our sin. So that the wrath, the anger of God, the righteous anger of God towards sin was not just quenched, but it was expressed righteously in order to punish sin. God wasn't just appeased in the way that he was in the Old Testament. When they would bring an animal, they would have a lamb on the Day of Atonement, and they would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of this spotless lamb upon the mercy seat, and God wouldn't bring judgment upon them because they've observed his requirement. But yet we see that the blood of bulls and goats didn't satisfy God. It was never sufficient to take away sin. All it did was cover sin. And yet... Jesus is he who, as John the Baptist said, takes away the sins of the world. He takes away the sins of the world. And let's not be casual in our understanding of what he done in order to achieve that. He gave himself as the father's punch bag. So that the wrath of God toward our sin, rather than being poured out on us, would be poured out on Christ and was poured out on Christ on our behalf. No one in their right mind would want to be that punch bag. 
No one in their right mind would want to try and absorb the wrath of God for your sin. And yet Jesus volunteered himself in obedience, giving himself to the death of the cross. This is a poor representation of what he experienced by way of enduring the penalty of our sin. And yet in doing so, he absorbed the wrath of God, satisfying it. This has been justly expressed and I'm satisfied that justice has been fulfilled. Now, there are some today that says, you know what, that paints a less than favorable picture of God. That's what we call cosmic child abuse. Some have even said we're familiar with the hymn in Christ alone. And in, in, there's a line in the hymn in Christ alone that says the wrath of God was satisfied. And they've said, look, let's not say that. Let's say the love of God was magnified, which is equally true, but really ought not to be our approach if we're trying to actually repaint the picture of who God is. Turn with me to Isaiah 53, if you will. In Isaiah 53, we see the prophets speak. And he speaks of the coming Messiah, the sacrifice he would make, and the punishment he would endure. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the, and the Lord has laid on him. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgression. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. The father smote, struck, crushed the son for our sin. God is too good. See, he is faithful and just. Faithful and just to honor the righteous provision for sin that he made. The reality is that God saved us from himself. By himself. For himself. And so when John speaks in verse 2 of Jesus being the propitiation for our sins, he rightly speaks of 
the gift of Jesus' righteous life, as we're told in Hebrews, being that which expiates, quenches, cools down, expels the wrath of God. And yet we see that it wasn't a passive expiation in that Jesus gave himself and God expressed that wrath. He expelled that wrath upon Christ for those who would believe. And so he truly is a sure savior, a sure savior who's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Never has one verse created so much controversy. Not only is the propitiation of Christ something that is debated about, but also the fact that John here states that Jesus propitiated our sins, and not just ours, but the sins of the whole world. Now we first have to ask the question, who is John referring to when he says our It seems clear from the context of the letter that John is speaking about Christians. John speaks about the fact that Christ paid the penalty for the sins of God's people. That's fundamental, that's understandable. But then he goes on to say, not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And some take that to mean, you see, love wins in the end. And even though people may reject Christ and endure some sort of punishment for that, in the end they will be brought into eternal life. And everyone will have eternal life. Because Jesus paid for everyone's sins. And if he paid for everyone's sins, everyone must be forgiven, right? Well, that would contradict what we see in Scripture. So, in what has been probably the most common verse, it's prob there's probably not a week that goes by that would that this verse isn't quoted. John 3, chapter 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We see clearly there John make reference to the world but also the conditional nature of eternal life. Eternal life is granted to those who believe in Christ. That much is clear. So often we stop at that verse, but I think it's going to be good for us to read on. In verse 17, 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Hold on, who's not condemned? Whoever believes in him. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Already under condemnation because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now we really ought not to stop there. Verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light. Echo, echo, echo. First John 1. Light, theme. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. So we see an expression of their choice by reason of their nature. They love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. And so we see clearly from this statement from Jesus that those who believe receive life, and those who don't are condemned. And so... As we look at 1 John 1 verse 2, when John says, the same writer says, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. He cannot mean, therefore, that everyone who ever lives is universally saved. Because he would be at that point contradicting what he himself has said under the inspiration Salvation is to those who believe. The cross has relevance to everyone. Some of you have been absolutely frustrated by the sight of one of these signs. Permit holders only. You've been driving around Lewisham, Westminster, wherever parking's the problem all over the place and you see this sign and you're like oh and you think to yourself hmm maybe I can chance it for five minutes if you're like me (laughs) but you're convicted because you know that anyhow you park in that parking bay Knowing that you don't have a permit, you're fair game. And if traffic warden comes, it's a wrap. You you take the penalty, accept the consequences, and keep it moving. Some might look at it and think to yourself, hmm, you know what, it's after half past six, you know. I must be able to park in here now. Notice there's no times. 
This is permit holders only. Always. No grace. <laughs> yeah? Now, that sign is death to the person without a permit. It communicates, don't come here. Because if you come here without permission, you're finished. To those who are permit holders, that's life. They rejoice at the sight of that as they drive home from their long journey and want to take their suitcases out in front of their front door because it guarantees them space. Now, the one sign has two meanings, although it's one sign. It has two applications to do two different sets of people, even though it's one sign. Now, this is a crude illustration. And to paraphrase something that Don Carson said about illustrations, illustrations stand on two legs. If you push them too far, they always fall over. So we're not trying to give an accurate and defined example of the meaning of the cross to those who are perishing and to those who believe. But you get the gist in that, in the same way, this permit holders is a joy to some and, and a convicting condemnation to others. Likewise, the cross speaks. And it speaks of life. The gospel is a sweet smell and savor to those who believe. But it's a foul stench to those who are perishing. It's the same gospel. How can it smell good and smell bad at the same time? Depends on where the individual's at. And so as we consider what John communicates, we appreciate that, just as Jesus said in John 3, recorded by John himself, to those who refuse to believe, Jesus is genuinely and legitimately available. But to those who refuse to believe, by reason of the choice and expression of their own nature, they're condemned. Yet the cross has relevance to them just as much as it does to those who believe. And this is the glory of God, that Christ be supremely glorified above all things. He has faithfully atoned for the sins of those who believe. And the call goes out, the gospel call goes out. Repent and believe. And yet people love the darkness rather than the light. And we were among those. And you may be here today and still one of those who has refused to accept Christ's wrath-satisfying sacrifice for your sin. Why? The only thing that could have us in a place where we continue to resist God's gracious gift of eternal life through Jesus is pride. My sin doesn't matter. I don't have no sin. I'm all right. I'm a good person. Well, 
Our scriptures today call you to repent, to change your attitude toward God and change your attitude about yourself and agree with God because the Bible makes it clear there is none good, no, not one. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is eternal separation from God. In eternal torment. Such is the seriousness of sin. And such is our inability to pay the penalty. That we would have to endure torment eternally as punishment for our sin. And yet Jesus the divine was given by God. And was killed, was punished by the Father so that those who believe could have eternal life. Praise be to God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and live. Submit your heart and trust in him because truly in him, all who are in him can say and rejoice at the fact that God isn't mad at me. God's exhausted his anger on Jesus. He's got no more anger left for me. Thank you, Lord. And we glorify Jesus because he is a sure savior. Amen. Can we stand as we pray? I ask. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus. The extent of your sacrifice for our sin goes beyond our comprehension. We faced a tormented eternity apart from you. Eternal life was permit holders only. And yet, Lord, we recognize that there is opportunity to request a permit. Recognizing that we cannot afford the price of the permit. It is something that is granted only as a gift by grace. And it's only able to be granted as a gift because, Jesus, you paid the penalty. You paid the penalty. so we thank you Lord truly you are glorified the lamb who was slain slaughtered before the foundations of the world we thank you Lord and we ask Lord that you would anchor our confidence in you our sure savior that we would not seek to find confidence in ourselves in our uh, our, our ability to do well, that we would not seek confidence because of the church that we go to or the fact that we have three different translations of the Bible in our house, but that our confidence would rest in Christ alone, our sure Savior, through whom we have been acquitted in the divine court of eternal justice by whom we have been acquitted 
and who stands as our advocate, our go-between, as our lawyer, as our representative between you, Heavenly Father. Allowing his blood to speak in heaven on our behalf. And so, I pray today for those who are appreciating and understanding this for the first time. And that, Lord, you would help them to surrender, grant them faith to believe, Lord. Lord, I pray you'd enable them by your spirit as this preaching of the gospel resonates in their heart. May it work repentance, Lord. We give you the glory and the honor and all the praise through Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. Amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.